Hello, this is Brian from Living in the End Times with Amos and X. As always, thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please be sure to follow us on social media. Give us a favorable rating on the podcast app of your choice, say CastBox or Podcast Republic. And most importantly, support us through Patreon at patreon.com slash endtimespodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash endtimespodcast, one word. And thank you in advance. your ivy league sweater that was great that was diet sig this song is called harvard (laughs) what are you trying to say (laughs) i have not been to harvard in honor of mark zuckerberg revoking my (laughs) access to the the social fabric you got zucked yeah so i got kicked off of facebook for no reason literally like they didn't even say you posted something you posted cringe or whatever they were like they claimed their suspicious activity on my account made me upload a selfie to verify my identity and uh, i still have no access to it um and so the conspiracy theorist in us is wondering if this is connected to the uh that 10-year challenge is that right yeah because like people are saying oh this is a you know the meme version is like the fbi needed a facial recognition 
engine update or something. And so they had people post tenure challenges. Now, annoying people were like, they already had all these pictures. Yeah, but if you, if people know how facial recognition engines work, um, it, I mean, now it's probably to the point where they don't have to do this as much, but a lot of these um, machine learning algorithms are trained by hand like you're feeding images and then you're correcting the machine you're telling it what is or is not the thing that they're looking for um so if that's still going on then it's 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 a lot easier to get three billion people to just upload their own mm -hmm. stuff now is that why i got sucked i don't know but i've never heard of anybody having to post a fucking selfie to get their account back which i don't have access to but what i've noticed since then is since i don't have other people aggregating news for me via my feed. Uh, the internet is fucking worthless. Everything is paywalled. You can't read anything. And this was all true before, but I had enough sources that uh, I could kind of bypass that. But now, like just trying to use Google News, it's complete mm -hmm. garbage. Mm -hmm. Some of it's interesting, but it's like not. It hasn't been. It's strange that like. I interact with Google constantly because I use Chrome and I use a de I, I use a console a lot and somehow Chrome still can't curate news for me. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, whatever AI they're using sucks. Google sucks. <laughs> and then these these quote unquote websites that was like are all paywalled for news. So it's just like, what's the fucking point? The Internet's dead i mean people have been people have like like one of the co-founders of pirate bay said a few years ago even he's like the internet's fucking done yeah. um and now i see why like i'm not it sucks that i can't like use a messenger and talk to my friends and all and shit but uh as far as like i'm sure it's gonna <laughs> ultimately have a positive effect mm. at some level it's just that like we're boxed out of facebook and i was telling our interlocutor i had an interaction at the post office with a boomer and another millennial and it was like if it's let's like i've been saying life is now a form of facebook and that's basically what happened not no like argument or anything just a boomer being a boomer being histrionic and a baby and probably you know makes 10 times as much money as me but like can't work the simplest of machines because like they're just they got grandfathered in by their own worthlessness and whatever so um there's no social fabric right, right. <laughs> the only reference i that came to mind for me was and i said it before um was mel brooks that prophet of the future who in, had uh rick moranis's dark helmet say in spaceballs 1986 fuck even in the future nothing works yeah and that's where we're at right yeah um well, had you, I don't mean to, I don't know go if ahead. going to go in a different direction. I was just going to talk about Spaceballs, but go ahead. <laughs> no, I would like to continue that thread then. I'll hold off. Um, I was just going to say that Spaceballs is kind of interesting because like, well, first of all, um, I think I saw, I saw, definitely saw Spaceballs before, way before I ever saw the first Star Wars movie, mm. but it's possible that I saw it after I saw like. Uh, Empire and Jedi and stuff. Sure. Um, 
which is interesting. Okay, so just contextually, I didn't see the first Star Wars movie until 1997, until they re-released oh, it in the theaters. Sure. Um, at which point I found out I wasn't missing anything. It sucks. Um, and we've talked in the show before, like, there's only two good Star Wars movies. Number one is Revenge of the Sith. Number two is uh, Rogue One. Um, and then, like, a far distant third would maybe be Return of the Jedi or empire fourth and then the rest of it can be get thrown in the garbage uh including the and especially the newest one which is not even a movie nothing happens in that movie like at all i was talking to our friend of the show scott about about it the other night and he said he watched this hour-long like analysis of the newest star wars movie and how like they basically made every every choice they made in the film is wrong like which I was like, I don't even need to see the fucking video. I agree totally because what happens in that movie? Nothing. It's Mark Hamill crying in the rocks and Ray trying to like baby. It's like a, yeah, it's the same thing. It's, it's, it's like boomer posting. Mm-hmm. And then you have like one, like half fight scene and then they kill fucking Han Solo. Like that's your movie. I mean, my argument is that Mark Hamill, he didn't age well, so they shouldn't have, if they would have had balls, they would have recast him. But of course, like nobody would have accepted that, but they should have. Cause he's not, he doesn't, he, he, again, he didn't age well. He's like, he's still the same, like smarmy little Luke Skywalker. He was in the, in the <laughs> late seventies, which worked in the context of a rebellion, but it doesn't work in the context of like him being a huge pussy and like just crying on rocks. Right. Like, I'm, I defy someone to tell me what happened in that movie because nothing did. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one, The Force Awakens was better, a lot better because at least it was a movie. It was obviously just a complete ripoff remake, mm-hmm. which I don't care. Mm-hmm. Fuck it. It was entertaining. Yeah. Um, but things happen. And then, like, now The Mandalorian is really good as a show it's just a half hour show and it's modest and it's john favreau and everything john favreau touches turns to gold apparently john favreau being the guy who vince vaughn's second in swingers Mm. or vice versa and um he directed like he's disney's bet the farm on him and it's worked Mm -hmm. he directed the first iron man which really kicked off the mcu he convinced universal to let Downey play Iron Man. They didn't want to. And that was obviously set the tone for the whole MCU. That's like the biggest franchise ever. Um, Even that movie chef, which seems like kind of self-indulgent and is self-indulgent, but is wonderful and spawned like, like people are just obsessed with that movie and totally inspired by it. Um, Kind of myself included. uh, I like, I really liked it. Um, and his show that he did as a spinoff on Netflix is also really good, maybe even better. Um. Anyway, so and then he did like the Jungle Book and the Lion King and shit. And then Disney's like launched their streaming service on his back, mm-hmm. purely on the strength of Mandalorian alone. Mm-hmm. Now he's smart. He just put Baby Yoda with Boba Fett, and everybody's like in love, myself included. It's fucking. It's great. Um. But so anyway, the, if they if they keep making choices like that, I think that I don't know it will work going forward. But if they try to do Force Awakens type shit again, like I don't know, 
Like, I, I don't care that they killed Han Solo. I don't really think they needed to, obviously, because, like, what's the point of that except to, like, fuck with people? I thought... I'd heard that Harrison Ford wanted out of that contract, and he like insisted, "Oh, okay. you kill me, or I'm not, or I'm not doing a film, or something like that." Then they should have just excluded him from the whole thing, right? Because Billy D. Williams is in the Mandalorian; <laughs> he's cool with. He doesn't right. give a fuck. <laughs> I think that's Billy D. It is, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. he's got his Colt forty five by his side. Or... So, <laughs> anyway, um, so back to Spaceballs. Was there? Oh, right. So like. <laughs> Me and my friend who talked pretty seriously about, like, you know, potential for physics, potential for AI to, like, mm-hmm. solve problems. My re- One of my reference points is Spaceballs precisely because I think the most interesting, with maybe the exception of Arrival, um, which is, like, the, the apex of this, like, sort of intelligent sci-fi, um, Arrival tied with maybe Blade Runner or something is like the sort of sloppy comedic or at least like um, not even it doesn't even need to be dystopian, but kind of a screwball version of the future. Right. And because my friends like wants wants to be a space trucker and <laughs> and Clutch style. and obviously, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I showed <laughs> I sent him that song. I could I'll play that song in a minute, but um, I'm like, we need to go further. We need to become time truckers. Right. Uh, so like, if you kind of take now, obviously this is all like completely informed by, like, my whole consciousness is just like '90s movies, which is totally fine with me. But like, even like something like Time Cop or, uh, you know, Terminator Two to whatever degree. Like the, but Spaceballs is great because they don't, they don't make the assumption that like, just because we have better technology, people are going to be either more noble or more intelligent about how their lives are better. Yeah. Right. It's just the same old bullshit. A bunch of morons like running around (laughs) and by morons, I'm talking like about Rick Moranis more than like John Candy or something. Um, So anyway, I just, I think that like, it's a, the 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 sort of more um, high high thread count version of this would be the film High Life, twenty nineteen I believe, which is just a total revelation. Um, in in my view, it's the first film that truly imagines uh, a post terrestrial subjectivity, human subjectivity, because like. The premise is, so it's got like Robert Pattinson and um, Julianne Binoche, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, Juliette Binoche, who's fucking phenomenal anyway, mm-hmm. but she's sort of a disgraced physician. And they send her and these like young people out into space to figure out, they're trying to... I think they're trying to figure out if it's viable to like have kids in outer space as part of it. But these people were like, they were like discarded youth who sure. were like living on the streets in France and then um, got conscripted into this somehow. Either like, I think it's almost like a penal colony, but there's, mm-hmm. but there are no prison guards obviously because they're on a fucking spaceship. 
and it's re- it's it's in certain ways really dark, but in other ways it's really um, there's a there's like a high proletarian dimension to all this, and to me that's sort of like a more accurate vision of like what's probably going to happen, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting because uh, Apple TV's flagship show for all mankind is about it's a great show and it's a great premise but it's interesting in the sense that they imagine what if the soviets won the space race and we kept and so our response to that was to keep uh, leveling up the space program rather than stopping it once we got Mm -hmm. to the moon so like the soviets get to the moon before us and then so we're trying to get there too we then we go and we get there but then they get there again and and they the astronaut pulls their visor up and it's a woman and so like NASA and Nixon freak out and then they 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 start a they start developing women astronauts immediately and that's sort of part of the trajectory of the show and then the US gets a space colony so they start us they be, they land a space base to start whatever they call Jamestown or something mm-hmm. um and then the Soviets do the same thing. It's almost like halfway through it. But the the fact that Nixon lost the space race becomes the reason he, Ted Kennedy gets elected, which then they but they just keep going with it. So it's a it's a great exercise in alternative history. And then it also gives it's an opportunity for Americans to find out that Warner von Braun was a fucking Nazi and shit. Um but in that context, he got he got dragged drugged before Congress for it and got fired, even though he invented the space program. It was mm-hmm. all his technology, more or less. Um. So like, but I think that's the the key thing. The hard thing to do is to imagine a future as as dark, but also like that darkness is not does not exclude. It doesn't mean we're going to a technological dark age. Mm-hmm. And it also doesn't mean that we, there won't be any development. It just means that like we can't tr- really predict what the trajectories will be or would have been uh, given a slightly different set of political concerns, um, which is, you know, something Zizek has mentioned, like he was on Chapo and they were like, what, what are there any trends in film that you think are positive? And he's like, there are these like, kind of like radical or whatever modest smaller budget sci-fi movies that are really great and he he's referenced um he's referenced different ones before in this context he referenced arrival which to me is the best film of the decade um and just to add to that i probably mentioned this before uh dennis villeneuve or however you pronounce his name his trilogy, and these aren't the only movies he made in this decade, but the, his trilogy of Prisoners, Sicario, and Arrival. To me, that's the trinity of films for this decade. Mm-hmm. And like the only like notable recent exception is maybe it, the only thing that could like compete with that artistically is probably Parasite, which I was talking about off air, mm-hmm. but most people probably haven't seen. But it's getting a lot of buzz. Um, it's a Korean film, which I highly recommend. Uh, Joker is sort of like the closing, the closing act of this decade, yeah. but I don't think it, you know, it's not the, it's, it's great. And we've 
you know, got talked about it at length, but it's not, it's not at that level. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so like, oh, and the other one Zizek mentioned was Captive State, which I also highly recommend, um, which is kind of a lot to get into, but this sort of futuristic uh, alien invasion, it's kind of like, it has a District 9 quality where like the aliens aren't, it's not like they're just going to destroy us, they're going to colonize us and use us as slaves and shit. There's another, there's a show on... USA called Colony that has a similar premise that is really I mean I've talked again USA is like the fucking like hard communist left radical edge of TV um Mr. Robot uh oh what was that Sinner or something it's the Sinner um I'm thinking of this other one the one about the 30s with the fucking Mm -hmm. communist preacher who I think it's called I I can look it up but um but Colony is wonderful in the same way where, like, there's collaboration between the humans and the aliens, but the collaborators are, like, against humanity, and there's a resistance, and, like, the main character, he's, like, a detective who gets sort of conscripted into working, like, hunting down resistance people, and then, of course, his wife ends up joining the resistance, and then, etc. Um, But I think that sort of, like, what... You know, obviously, all, everything I'm talking about is a foil for talking about class struggle, like any good, any good, you know, leftist cinema would be. But um, when, with me again, the exception of Arrival, uh, but I think that we should be forced to imagine um, what, like, whether or not it's aliens or not, uh, which Annihilation does an excellent job of staging like the horror of the uh, something new being birthed that we can't predict be that AI, be that biotechnology, be that all the above. Um, that's where I think that's where we get, we're going to f- be able to face the deadlocks within that context, aesthetically, politically, and philosophically, but it can't be dodged. And so it needs to be reckoned with. And if we don't reckon with it, then we have a trillion versions of dystopia, which, mm-hmm. you know, are also rendered readily in film. Well, and sort of to that point, I haven't seen most of those films you referenced with the exception of Arrival, but um, bringing it back to Spaceballs, I'd seen that much like you. Well, I saw Return of the Jedi in the theater as a super young kid with my dad, whatever. And then I saw, I think, that film before Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. And those were great. I liked them as a kid and so on. But I even at the time as a child and now as an adult, I came back to Spaceballs and I liked that better because it struck me as a better film, quote unquote, but also just a smarter um, way of approaching that sort of extraterrestrial being, as it were, to to your point, and just more philosophical and intelligent to, to the, you know, such that, and this is maybe a stretch, but there's that scene where... They're trying to, uh, you know, the, the Spaceballs are trying to find um, Lone Star and they're like, well, let's just get Spaceballs the movie, right? So they put Spaceballs the movie on the machine and they're, <laughs> right. they come to the exact point in the film that is being filmed at that moment and they're watching themselves in real time, right? And mm-hmm. there's that dialogue about when, where are we at? We're at now, now. Well, when did we get to then? Were we just past then? We're at now, now. We'll go back to then. When? Now? No, et cetera. And I'm, I'm again, I'm like, that struck me as a highly 
abstract concept for an exploitation pop film, and it sticks with me. And I, you know, years later, I, you know, I read Hegel. You read Hegel, and mm-hmm. I swear to a God, little. I swear to God, there's a scene in Phenomenology that Mel Brooks is referencing in that scene where Hegel talks about the passage of time and how the moment in and of itself, in itself now, is always perpetually the past. It's that, like, it strikes me as pure Hegelian, that scene. Mm-hmm. I, I realize now, and I didn't as a kid, and I, and I come back to that again because I think it's, it's still brilliant to me in ways that, to the beginning of this conversation, the Star Wars films are just not. Um, right. And and it's still more interesting in terms of yeah, not just um, pieces of film or, or as you know leftist uh, you know works of art, but as attempts to grapple with the future and with quantum physics and philosophy and all that stuff. Yeah, that I I'll have to rewatch Spaceballs now because I I don't remember much specifically, but um, it's it's interesting because that's like what I was thinking when you're talking is. That's the George Lucas is the Gentile doing the Gentile version, like <laughs> right. the kids' version, the and Protestant the version, boomer version yeah. yeah, the boomer version, and Mel Brooks is doing the Jewish version, right. which is obviously more interesting and more uh, sophisticated intellectually, right. um, for lots of obvious sort of obvious reasons. And it's not, I shouldn't, I mean. That's not the whole story, but right. as far as like remaking the same concept, like as su- like repeating the gesture in um, in a better way, it it doesn't surprise me that like that's where like the Jewish version is going to be more is going to be better um, in those ways. So, uh, mm-hmm. okay. What, well, yeah, I don't know if it's worth getting. About. So we were talking about Facebook mm-hmm. originally. Um, what you missed by not being on Facebook today, having been sucked mm. and locked out, is uh, Pr- President Trump, pr- I guess, tweeting a photograph of himself on Rocky Balboa's body, which is amazing, mm-hmm. by the way. Well, you tell me. I don't even know what happened exactly. I guess I didn't follow it in detail either. I just saw the image, and I saw that it was our president who sent out the tweet. Um, and Again, it's not. there's nothing really worth getting into uh, politically or in terms of detail here other than I just think it's hilarious. Yeah. Um, and it looks really good. Um, I don't know if it means anything or if it's interesting analytically, but um, that's what you missed. Is my po- and maybe that's the point is that like that's what Twitter and Facebook have become, and right. that's what you're missing, which is literally nothing. You are missing nothing, with the exception of as you pointed out off air the the sort of news aggregating mm-hmm. factor and what's your other the crowdsourcing of information that you're not getting now, and, and that's what I like about it too. But that's it. Yeah, I I mean, as I was sitting here thinking about it a little bit, it was like as I was trying to like find news and like failing largely because the internet sucks, Mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, it's not that like when I say, you know, when I've said that life has become a form of Facebook, that's, that is the, what that says to me also is the same thing that I've been saying since for a few years, which became very like transparent. It, starting in 2015 which is that the social fabric was being destroyed and i i'm not i'm not a boomer so i'm not saying oh social media destroyed the social fabric no it's precisely the rise of social media which is symptomatic of the the disillusion of the social fabric right. and so what we're left with is a semblance 
not that there's ever an unmediated social relation, um, which I was accused of claiming, which is bullshit. It's just a cheap shot because I don't think you have to say something is unmediated f to be able to argue that like what we had before and what we lost was maybe uh, better than what we have now. That's not nostalgia. That's just simply the facts, especially when you can chart in real terms the rise of like young people's suicidality, right. like mm -hmm. correlative directly to the rise of social media. Mm -hmm. And I think we should look at ourselves like we're 11 year olds at the level of if, if I'm 11, 12, 13, 15, 18 year old and everything, or at least a lot of shit happens in a way that's mediated via social media. Is that my fault that I either participate in that or don't, or am affected by it? Of course not. Like the kids don't have a choice in that. It's if you have this sort of, bad technology unleashed. And when I say bad technology, I mean, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, YouTube, whatever, they're designed in a very particular way to elicit a very particular response. You know, Sean Parker, the former Napster guy and the Facebook, one of the Facebook creators uh, said, he's like, we create, we destroyed the world with this. Like it's, it was designed to get people addicted to it and it's designed to uh, get people yelling at each other because that gets the most engagement is anger. Mm -hmm. And so we, we engineered it to do that and it did what it was engineered to do and it's fucking destroyed everything. So when I say bad technology, I mean, objectively like the creators say it's a bad technology. Um, Zuckerberg won't admit that obviously cause he's, you know, like controls, the so he owns the social fabric. He oh, he controls the platform that three billion people participate mm -hmm. in, whether they like it or not. And nobody likes it. nobody's like Facebook's awesome. No one's ever said that, not since two thousand seven, and that's like being generous. Um. So, but it's it's interesting to sort of be kicked off of it because, and that's different than like opting out. I think if you opt out, you're sort of, I never, the reason I never quit Facebook was because I was like, I would just go back to it. Like what, mm -hmm. what choice? It's not like there's an outside of it. Like, and so what I'm noticing being kicked out even for a day is like, oh, so in some ways it's a bit of a relief to be kicked out. Cause I'm like, well, I don't have to worry. Like, I don't have to look at this. Maybe I'll be able to think about different things, but then like the way people interact in, you know, AFK away from keyboard is facebook style um that that mediation is ever present whether or not i have access to it directly so what does that mean that means there's no social fabric and maybe this is a way to transition talking about the labor manifesto mm -hmm. um i think like we should probably perceive the part of the bat ideological struggle that we're engaged in right now, which has been true, especially since again, 2015, I think um, what I like to, what I referred to privately as the retard wars, um, the meaning like, and that's just sort of a brutal shorthand for like ideological 
manipulation slash like people who are either bad faith actors intentionally or are just like sort of handmaidens of neoliberal capitalism ideologically and the, the just the way that the this you know semblance of a social fabric functions and like the alternative to that is not more social media like on red scare anna's made the claim multiple times that there's no possible left-wing like the left can't exist in a world of like sort of mediated by social media. That's not a direct quote, but basically that's what she's saying, which is an interesting idea. And I think the reason for that is that like, it's not simply that these are just capitalist undertakings, you know, corporate tyrannies controlled by, you know, whoever is put at the levers of power at the behest of these oligarchs, which is true. That's part of it. Um, but it's more that like all of Facebook is all Facebook is is self branding, no matter what reason you're on that. Like that's all that's happening. Like that's why as is commonly been known, you know, whatever happens on Facebook is a lie. Like there's no way to be transparent on Facebook. It doesn't matter what you're saying whether it's true to you or not, that mediation itself is already capturing the reality and morphing it. And obviously nobody is in a direct way relating, like putting their life as it is on Facebook. Cause that's right. not even possible for right. structural reasons. So it's not, I'm not blaming people, but it's, it's also like, we shouldn't believe what we see, you know, you know, whatever they say, believe none of what you see and half what you hear. No, b believe none of it. It's all bullshit. Um, and the people I think who are effective at it and who like figure out a way to hack it are people who are not talking about their personal lives, who are just trying to like engage comically or politically what I try to do. And I'm not saying I'm successful or not. I'm just saying like, I don't know how else you could do it mm -hmm. to actually have some sort of real quasi real interaction um, in a universal or abstract way even. Um that's all to say, like, we don't need to worry about, like, the point I made to my friend was, we've figured out, so those of us on the left who are, like, decent at trying to kind of, again, hack Facebook in a way with memes or with um, just sort of using it against its own mm -hmm. intended purpose, we've done the absolute best we possibly could. And there's a lot of shit that worked meme-wise, um, like... Like we've talked about, so, so many people are socialists and communists now, um, openly. And that wasn't true in 2014 or 13 or whatever. But we've, we've, we've reached the absolute limit of what that, what can be accomplished there. And so, but that should be, we should understand that as a relief at the level of, we don't have to fix social media because it's unfixable. Um, and so what's the solution? The solution isn't like be a Luddite or throw your computer away. The, the, the way out is to figure out a way to engage politically where it matters. It doesn't matter whether or not you're engaging with social media. It's that it's something that will shift the underground directly such that like it may make these, these platforms become innocuous or at least less potent in terms of controlling the world and dictating elections and shit. 
Uh, so what's the solution? Bernie Sanders, Jeremy Corbyn, you know, Bernie Sanders is the only one who's threatened to lock up CEOs of big right. tech companies and oil companies too. Yeah. But, but what I, we're talking yeah. about social mediation right, right now. You. Um, and so like the, well, I'll let you respond, but then we can talk about the labor manifest. Oh yeah. I want to, I, I don't want to get too far away from that, but maybe this is, I was just going to ask a further question about the red scare argument and maybe as a way toward this labor manifesto. If I'm hearing, having not heard that argument from Anna on the, on the podcast there, Am I right in sort of intuiting that what she was suggesting is that, to your experience having been kicked off, the ways in which Facebook lies and cheats and manipulates algorithms or just sort of reduces the ways in which people communicate with each other to these mediated exchanges directly and indirectly prevents social solidarity and or organizing for the left and then that sort of that online presence which has become the reality affects the way in which all of us think and speak to each other, even in the quote real world, even if we don't have Facebook because we can't communicate with each other in those organized ways. So we don't see ourselves as part of a global struggle or whatever. I think she would probably agree with that or at least to a degree. I think it more is in a like kind of a formal sense of like the, the neoliberal subjectivity that, is created in a world of like in within a framework of a platform that's all only about self-branding. Sure. This is my interpretation is not what she's saying. Sure. Uh, renders it formally meaning structurally impossible to like, you can't it's anti-leftist mm. in its form is the point. So like what you're describing are all the sort of like ripple effects or okay. some of the ripple effects of that. Okay. But the, the fundamental issue is has to do with like I would say so like what what are you competing for on Facebook or Twitter likes retweets follows mm -hmm. Instagram is probably a more Instagram is a pure example of the problem because no nothing happened literally nothing happens on Instagram at all like you're not allowed to retweet anything you have to upload pictures mm -hmm. presumably of yourself or what you're eating or what you're seeing um that that is a recipe for nothingness like mm -hmm. there's no there's no possible way anything can happen mm -hmm. on Instagram Snapchat's even worse because it's temporary so like uh it it's getting more and more worthless as like the only like for me facebook is the less the, the least worst of worst possible options only because there are no character limits and it's it's built with messenger so that like you can actually just talk to people directly if you want um but it's still completely mediated manipulated uh our data is all stolen and all that shit. Like there's it, what the undercarriage, the, the, you know, you know, in the old Marxist terms, the base, uh, is like, and the, the superstructure is the front facing platform. Mm -hmm. The base is they control all your data. They know all your social contacts. They can manipulate you with ads. Um, as Cambridge analytic approved, you can micro target people and change, their political preferences if they fall within a certain range of malleability and for all of these reasons and more it's it's a fundamentally right-wing mm -hmm. 
platform. I would say an even simpler version of that is it makes you interact as an individual with an identity sure. in a political or non-political or apolitical way. Whereas with collective action, with solidarity, none of that you would have. I'll put it this way. Paradoxically, something like 4chan, which is forced, all the posts are forced anon, meaning since whenever they started that policy, probably 10 years ago, maybe nobody has an identity. You are just anonymous. And mm -hmm. so like now that obviously creates a lot of potential problems in terms of just misinformation and all that stuff. But that's all there in Facebook. It's just that it's fake. There's a fake sense of reality because it's your name or whatever. Right. Um, and so like in the old days, the the internet that the, that Snowden was um, praising was like you had for the first time in human history just a complete openness of information and like their barriers were being removed. There's no social hierarchy. There were no like there's no intellectual hierarchy. Mm -hmm. People were able to find each other anonymously and form relationships and then become not anonymous on their own terms. Um, but collaborate on shit and do so in a way that protected them in their privacy for real, um, which is probably cr critical to any sort of serious democratic, you know, scenario. So one might argue, well, perhaps that's one of the reasons why it's in these developing countries or these second sort of uh, transitional between like developing and developed countries that you see all these revolutions kicking off because like their, their relationship to the internet mm -hmm. and the potency of their buying power is not so the stakes aren't as high in mass for advertisers. So like the censorship functions differently. And as a result, like, the social link is not mediated in the same way. And so it's, it's a combination of the mediation, the, the, well, and then the, the symptoms of that mediation in terms of the individuality, the lack of the lack of a collective subject within a context of no anonymity. Mm -hmm. um, and then just the, the undercarriage of data exploitation. Yeah. No good. Um, so thank you for that. And so you're right. So, I mean, to that point, the solution to this in some ways might be a Bernie and or um, the labor manifesto that Jeremy Corbyn just put out there. Right. So I'm going to, I mentioned this before, uh, this concept, but I'm just going to preface this by saying, so uh, this is astrology, so grain of salt, whatever, um, but it's interesting. Uh, outer planets take a long time to uh, orbit the zodiac uh, Pluto takes 248 years slow moving related to fundamental change Saturn is related to like structures and time and like uh, basically kind of the disciplinarian of this zodiac Pluto and Saturn are uh, conjunct meaning the same place in the sky from the perspective of the earth once every 35 years or so their conjunction their coming conjunction in January 2020, it's already sort of started, but it will be direct at that point, is in the sign of Capricorn. And so that conjunction in Capricorn hasn't happened since 1517, which was when, which corresponded to Martin Luther's um, 95 theses 
uh, which kicked off the Protestant Reformation. So it changed. It literally like it it's inaugurated modernity mm-hmm. and ended the the Dark Ages, basically, um, or at least the medieval period. So the to me the significance of the labor man 2019 labor manifesto labor party's manifesto and the uk elections coming up on december 12th is that is our 95 theses moment so and that might seem sort of like extreme or whatever but i think it's important to note that luther was luther's theses were nailed to the door of his local church it's not like (laughs) he went to the vatican and did this um but it but because of the new technology, the printing press, it was able to spread like wildfire and the Catholic church was um, sort of powerless to uh, stop its ultimate descent because they could no longer control information. Mm. Now there are left-wing theologians like Trip Fuller of reference a lot on the show and I've referenced this idea as well, but I think it's relevant for him. His claim is like, basically you have, um, you don't get we, we don't get capitalism without Protestantism and we don't get Protestantism Protestantism without the printing press. Um, and we're in a moment where that uh, we have the new version of the printing press now, the Internet, but we haven't yet found the social form that the economic form to that's like up to the task of, uh, you know, whatever utilizing the not utilizing the internet directly but utilizing the what the internet perhaps potentially could be as a means of social organization we don't have that form yet and i and i'm not saying that the labor manifesto is the form however i do think it it will set off a potential process of saving us from climate change um why so I'll read a summary article in a in a moment, but just to start off, like Corbin proposes basically uncapped nuclear power to stop climate change. They want to go carbon. They want to go net zero carbon in the UK by 2030, which is a monumental task and can only be achieved by nuclear power. That's the only way to go carbon free. I've talked in many other episodes about this. Um, nuclear power is the only way to go carbon free. It's the cheapest, safest, and um, most effective, most scalable, most abundant form of stable baseload power, meaning 24-7, no no wind turbine or solar, you know, fluctuations which make that shit, like, useless and are pushed, low-key pushed by uh, big oil because it sells natural gas, even if you get rid of coal. Um, And so... Without an example of nuclear in the developed world as a means of a Green New Deal type of situation, there's no way Bernie can really make that argument in the U.S. because the the anti-nuclear propaganda is so entrenched on the left. Um, But, and I should point out, Bernie is not pro-nuclear right now. He needs to be forced to be pro-nuclear. But I, I think that, I think I've talked about this before, when we talked about the Green New Deal, the specific provisions, Bernie wants to renationalize the electrical grid and the oil production, basically. Um, once he does that, then he can uh, become pro-nuclear 
without a problem. And my friend who's really involved in the nuclear engineering scene and there's basically there's a there's a means to nuclear that's really safe and it's passively safe uh there are a lot of different versions of this but the one that's the easiest and quickest to get through is it's a molten chloride um something reactor but and it breeder reactor i think and basically like it's almost solid state fuel um and it's it's material built with materials that are already approved for nuclear power plants in the U.S. And so, like with forty-eight gigawatts, uh, gigawatt plants, you could replace. Basically, it would be like taking every car in the U.S. off the road, like two hundred thirty-five million cars or whatever it is. Um, if we don't do that, we're dead. Uh, the oceans will probably boil within thirty years, and that seems crazy, but like ocean acidification and heating of the oceans is the biggest problem that will set off nonlinear dynamics unimaginable to us. Um, and so like this is when I say it's as world historical as a Protestant reformation, I mean, if we don't get the, even if we get a labor government and then Bernie as president, that doesn't guarantee we're going to win, but without it, we're not going to, we, we don't have a chance. Um, so, uh, you can respond if you want to sure. read a little yeah, bit. Yeah, as you were gonna as you looked that up, I was only gonna add that I think we talked about this um <clears throat> a couple of years ago when I was doing a, a thing about a you know, was, I did a, a a group discussion amongst a bunch of academics in town here who had written punk books or whatever. We brought up the um the Trump presidency and is Trump the punk president and all that. Um and I think the the conversation we had was, well, let's just follow the labor. I'm not sorry, the labor, the the English model or what's happening in the UK, because, um, you know, whatever happens there is in some ways a barometer for what's coming over in this country. And so we saw the the Brexit vote in the UK and whatever that was 2016. And then the very, you know, a month or two later than U.S. goes or it's more than that. But um, U.S. goes for Donald Trump, et cetera. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering if we're going to see a similar sort of thing take shape in this case. We're obviously hoping that. Labor wins the election in December that this um, labor manifesto sort of starts to take shape in, in material terms for real then. And that in the, in my head sort of helps, gives me hope that, that we're going to see something similar with the Bernie presidency in 2020 in the U.S. But I'm sorry, what was the relation to Trump? I missed part. You're saying that. Oh, I think we were discussing at the time the ways in which, oh, we don't want to be outdone by the UK. And so when oh, they did yeah, the yeah. Brexit right, thing, right. we're like, well, we're going to vote for Trump then. Watch yeah. this. <laughs> yeah. And then so I'm similar to, I'm wondering if we can do something. I'm hoping for a similar move on the left though, yeah. in 2019-20. Right. So. Exactly. That's exactly right. I mean, that was, that was what I predicted in 2016. And I was right that um, I, ha- I had been saying that since Brexit, basically, obviously kind of joking, but like, also kind of serious. I was like, they are, we will not be outdone by right. the UK. Right. And I was right. And then, uh, and I, to your point, I had a similar thought. Like if, if we elect Corbin, then we'll probably not be outdone here. And so it, which, which is just to say that's sort of like a, obviously comical way of saying what's probably true, which is what happens in the UK is sort of like what will happen later in the U S um, no, we can't guarantee that. And if Adolf Reed's right that Bernie 
will get fucking assassinated before they let him be president, then that changes things. But um, nevertheless, like that, that's definitely the, it's the hope, but it's also like, it's consistent with um, what we're seeing. So we can maybe talk about this just for a moment before I get into the labor manifesto. (laughs) The, our, our, what we talked about, you know, the Chapo thing about Pete Buttigieg being in the CIA uh, I was thinking about it more, and he was in the Naval Reserve. I believe Hunter Biden was in the Naval Reserve. Is that right? I don't know. Um, he was in some kind of Navy shit. And so now I'm just like, oh, so the Naval Reserve is just a cover for CIA. Like, <laughs> which kind of makes sense because most of the Naval shit is on the East Coast anyway. Right. Um, and, uh, sorry, I'm just Googling this. But, like, um, why am I talking about this now? Because... Quinnipiac or whatever has Pete Buttigieg pulling second nationally among Democrats with Biden in first and Bernie in third. That that is literally no way bonkers. Like that doesn't make any fucking sense. Um, yeah, Hunter Biden. He came word. out of nowhere. He has no support. People don't know who he is. Right. Like they don't know his fucking name. Um, and yes, Hunter Biden was in the Naval Reserve. So now we know, okay, that's, we solved that case. Um, Pete boot, I think I saw a poll recently where like a huge majority of people didn't even know Pete Buttigieg's name. They'd never heard it before. He's polling, I think at 0% among black people, 0%. Like how in the name of fuck? Is he second in the Democratic field? Nationally. Right. Like, so this is literally just a, a PSYOP. And I, so I was trying to imagine, like, what did that email exchange look like? With the CIA, like, okay, here's the numbers you, quote, randomly call to do this, um, do this poll or whatever. Uh, and, like, Liz Warren's finished. She's now, just today, she's now arguing that the, the soldiers from Wounded Knee should get their medals stripped from the 19th century. Like, this is what we're talking about. <laughs> this is, like, the dumbest, wonkiest shit. Mm-hmm. I mean, n- not that I... I'm not saying that, that will make her unpopular. Right. I think it might because you're you're fighting a battle that doesn't make any sense that no one really cares about. Like, I mean, there aren't... Right. I, don't, I doubt there are indigenous groups who are really concerned with this issue. Right. Um, so it's just like a cheap ploy to like, I don't know, not have to talk about real issues or something like that. Um, and her the, her backing off of Medicare for all collapsed her run. So, you know, fuck it. She's done. That's great, I guess. But the idea then that Pete Buttigieg somehow exploded, his ascendancy makes like I this does not not only does it not track, mm-hmm. it would literally like be a different reality. Um, so anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> any again they're just sending anybody they can after bernie okay so here's the this is a from jacobin jeremy corbyn just announced a vision for humane britain in 2017 a member of labor's inner circle anonymously leaked a draft copy of the party's election manifesto to the press the motive was clear to embarrass the leadership in the hope that the more radical aspects would be shelved after much public mockery and the policies contained therein torn asunder by voters, journalists, and experts alike. In 1983, Michael Foote's labor party put forward a manifesto based solidly on socialist principles, which the MP Gerald Kaufman, 
Gerald Kaufman described as the longest suicide note in history, an epithet that haunted the left of the party for decades. The leak clearly was designed to invoke that memory, to bully Jeremy Corbyn's team into quashing anything that might be construed as remotely Marxist and cling to a more staid, cling to more staid centrist policies. And yet, the manifesto was immensely popular. In the end, most commentators and activists cast the leak as a turning point in that election, the moment labor shifted from being miles behind in the polls to becoming a formidable foe that was to eat into the conservative lead and ultimately cost Theresa May her majority. A lot was riding on the launch of this year's manifesto. The Liberal Democrats had released their uninspiring manifesto the day before with no policies making any particular impact. The party continues to dip in the polls as it becomes clear this election is a two-party race. Labor needed to remain as radical as they revealed themselves to be in 2017, but also present a blueprint for a completely different society that promised to undo the harm a decade of austerity has unleashed upon the country. Some policies were pre-trailed. The immensely popular plan to nationalize fiber broadband and give everyone, give every home free high-speed internet access, uh, renationalizing rail, mail, and utilities, mass investment in the public services that have been decimated by central government funding cuts, but there's far more. A promise to reverse the anti-trade union laws the Tories had passed to prevent workers fighting for better paying conditions with the promise to outlaw zero-hour contracts, raise the minimum wage to 10 pounds an hour, which is like 20 US, $20 an hour, and extend maternity and paternity leave. These are broad and far-reaching promises, giving workers the same rights whether they're self-employed, new to a workplace, or working part-time. Nestled within the larger plans are uh, notionally smaller commitments that can appear inconsequential but have the potential to genuinely improve people's lives individually. Having the same rights as people on, on permanent contracts who've been in a job far longer than you is important, but Labor's promise to institute statutory leave for bereavement and miscarriage is a fundamentally decent strand of policy that has the potential to bolster the emotional well-being of individuals when they are at their most vulnerable. Greater protections for terminally ill people and women experiencing menopause are further examples of the pragmatic utopianism Labor have made a hallmark of their policymaking. When my grandmother was diagnosed with advanced cancer, she found out not only did her employer, the supermarket Asda, owned by Walmart, offer her almost no sick pay while she was undergoing a lengthy stretch of chemotherapy, but the state provided little in the way of benefits, threatening her ability to pay her rent and bills. Upon my father's death, I was told that due to understaffing, I could take a day for his funeral, but no more than that. The United Kingdom's entire infrastructure tool will alter if labor win and deliver a manifesto. Climate catastrophe is endangering the globe, and the parties take a sketched out a plan for the green industrial revolution, creating a million jobs in the regions and towns that need the employment the most, aiming to make the economy carbon neutral by 2030. The environmental policy is radical and hugely ambitious, and ushers in the promise that not only can we avert the flooding that blighted the first few weeks of campaigning, but that in doing so, Britain can bring back genuinely good jobs to regions that collapsed economic, economically after Thatcherism on steroids killed mining steelworkers and shipbuilding jobs in working-class communities that had the temerity not to vote conservative. The Tories constantly argue Corbyn and MacDonald want to, quote, take Britain back to the 70s, a tired cliche that has the specter of strong trade unions and workers' power as a boogeyman to be feared. But for older potential labor voters, Boris Johnson will only bring back Thatcherism, and for the young, they weren't even alive then and have only known a failing post-crash capitalism limping on that has loaded them with debt and made both work and housing utterly precarious. So Labor planned to go back to the 
1960s, promising to build 100,000 council homes and 50,000 social housing units a year, a number not seen since 1967. Rents would be linked to local earnings and genuinely affordable, taking millions off waiting lists that have been remained that have remained stagnant as conservatives have failed to build the homes they've promised. On the BBC after the manifesto launch, Tory minister Liz Truss was asked how many of the promised starter homes the party had managed to build in the previous year. Truss obfuscated, claiming she wasn't entirely on top of the figure so she could not tell the presenter, Andrew Neal, off the top of her head. It was relatively easy to memorize, Neal pointed out. The figure was zero. On day one of a Corbyn government, Labor had promised to scrap the deeply punitive Department of Work and Pensions, replacing the DWP with the Department for Social Security. Under the Conservatives, access to welfare has been made into a deliberately cruel labyrinthine system with recipients sanctioned for spurious reasons and left without money for food, rent, and heating, reliant on food banks while teachers and doctors warn that children are showing signs of rickets and malnutrition and people are dying after being denied disability benefits and being declared, quote, fit for work. The inherent dignity of life is spelled out clearly in the manifesto, a point of a supreme importance to people who have been scapegoated and made to suffer for decades under new labor and the conservatives. Quote, the Tories' rhetoric of scroungers and skeevers, it notes, quote, has whipped up hatred of disabled people with disability hate crimes skyrocketing at 37% in the last year alone. Labor will never demonize disabled people or the underemployed, end quote. This isn't merely lip service, but a genuinely transformative statement based on the belief that all people should be treated equally, regardless of their economic or social position. The party aims to eradicate poverty and homelessness, to stop children from growing up poor and people sleeping on the streets in the sixth richest economy in the world. But the party faces an uphill struggle. Uh, Okay, that's probably going to get into the analysis. Anyways, that's sort of like a taste, but... Um, it didn't go into as many specifics as I'd hoped, but like labor intends to delist companies from the London stock exchange. who did not comply with the climate regulations. And I believe they have to pay some sort of climate reparations if they've been found to be contributing to climate change. That sentence I just said is so insane from a U.S. perspective that like we can barely imagine it. The, the U.S. government has the power to do such things, and Bernie has said he would he would hold uh, CEOs criminally liable for um, antitrust violations, i.e., monopoly capitalism, anti-competitive shit. Um, and I haven't read the whole Labor Manifesto; it's very long. But like the basically like, and Corbyn also wants to include, I believe, dental and some other stuff in the NHS. So he wants to expand the NHS. Mm-hmm rather than contract it. Um, I th- and there's some language in there about the ways, and I think he's pitching a UBI as well, universal basic income or something like it. Um, and the, the way, the, the particular ways in which they're going to strengthen the unions are pr- extremely radical as well. And Bernie's begun talking more about that recently. Like I mentioned a few weeks ago, he was talking openly about how the U.S. needs increased labor militancy, using the word militancy, which is amazing. But he also wants to get rid of right to work nationally. Um, and so, like, the the other thing that will happen when Corbyn wins, and I'm pretty sure he'll win, the Financial Times endorsed him. Wow. Um, and the other, last week, 300,000 
British citizens register to vote a single day, which is unheard of. 200,000 of which were 18 to 35, which means those are all labor votes, basically. Um, If Corbyn, when Corbyn wins, and this bolsters Bernie's ability to win, I think, for different reasons, assuming that they both win, we will have, rather than simply a a purely militaristic, um, you know, alliance with the UK, we will then have like actual solidarity among uh, political parties. Now, obviously, there's ideological unity among neoliberals and neoconservatives, which I would obviously include Tony Blair in that camp because he was ardent supporter of the Iraq War. Mm-hmm. Uh, it should be dragged in front of the Hague and shot or whatever. But uh, along with Bush and whoever else, but um, the 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 difference is if. It's different to have like oligarchs in line with each other. Obviously, they're in line with each other because they all have the same class interest. With somebody like Corbyn and Sanders in power, there becomes like the social movement underneath that is something akin to like a proto new international, like a real new sort of at least quasi communist international, um, which has never really happened in Western democracies. Like we've never had social Democrats in control of major economies in this particular way, mm-hmm. in, especially not in control of major uh, military forces with the exception of like Russia or China. But like, obviously the cold war element there means they were, the superpowers were averse were opposed to each other with, with Sanders and Corbyn in power this will bolster the European left even more so generally, because again, you had social Democrats in control of these countries in, you know, France and Norway and Sweden and um, Germany to some degree for a very long time. But like the U S was always the, the right wing of that with somebody like Sanders in power, we have a completely different map politically globally. And if uh, furthermore, like on the nuclear power question, if we can get Sanders to back nuclear, which becomes a lot easier with somebody like Corbyn and power is already doing it um, and conser- and right wingers back nuclear power in the U.S. So it's actually a bridge issue. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can get the react- reactionary greens out of the way, then China, China is already developing nuclear power, but they will, if the U.S. starts to move in that direction, China's nuclear power production will explode. They'll get there before we do, mm-hmm. which could then basically stop major coal production. India is also developing nuclear power. So like, and if the U.S. starts working on energy projects in a way that like allow, that opens the door for other countries to also go nuclear, Germany could go nuclear Etc. Etc. So, like, it's easy to see how this trajectory, if if all things, you know, if if all the tumblers hit correctly, like this, we could have a global wave of revolution in a positive way, even at even within established political structures, that um, could signal a bright future. So we could have a World War II level mobilization fighting climate change. Um that might achieve what the 20th century was unable to do, which is some sort of global solidarity uh, along the lines of something that looks like the left. Now, obviously that's, 
I'm just speculating and I'm sort of like filling in the blanks the way I want them to fall, but it's not far-fetched in the slightest. Right. So we already have massive social uprisings all over the place on the periphery. Chile has been forced to rewrite their constitution because the the basically the government de facto was overthrown by the people in the streets. Uh, obviously not... In Bolivia, that's still an open question. It may devolve into a civil war because the the right is being bolstered by, obviously, the U.S., etc. Um, but the, as things sort of unravel, the only way to restabilize, even from a quote-unquote conservative position, if you want to restabilize these societies, you need major structural reforms at, that come from the left. Um, so I think it's it's really important to obviously support labor and shit, but um, it's important to consider like how this could go. Like to me, you know, I didn't have, uh, I don't have much at a realist level. I don't have much hope that we're going to avert serious climate change. I think that's kind of like, we might've already passed that point. Um, But like I'm at the point now where I'm pretty sure you know, and I, I hopefully I'm not wrong, but I'm pretty sure Labor's going to win. And if Labor wins, that makes it easier for Bernie to win. And if I'm right that Bernie's kind of already won, then we might be on our way to something that's like actually like a livable future. There's certainly a lot, a lot that's going to happen between now and the election. But I think you to that point, you referenced the number of is it new voters in the UK and that they're all uh, Labor voters likely. Yeah. Isn't it? Before you were, you know, blocked from Facebook, mm-hmm. fake block. Where, you know, weren't there? Didn't you post some sort of other story about all the the two million uh, newly registered voters in the United States who were something like a majority of them were under thirty five or under twenty? Hmm. I don't maybe, remember. No, possibly. Maybe I that post was a lot of up. shit. <laughs> sure. Well, in any case, maybe that wasn't you. Maybe it was somebody else. But I, I thought I saw that headline as well. Didn't follow the story. Was going to haven't followed up. But if that's the case, again, if we're seeing voter registrations in this country spiking in these uh, in the run-up to the primaries and the caucuses, and it's predominantly young people, I think, to the point you're just making, yes, we might be seeing um, things fall into place for uh, Bernie doing well, and that's, again, bolstered by the fact that uh, former President Obama is coming out and trying to publicly pull the country back to the center, if not the right. Mm-hmm. We're seeing, you know, Michael Bloomberg, we're seeing Deval Patrick, all these sort of people just coming out of nowhere trying to run, you know, with it, ha- for, it has to be with the express intent of trying to get in Bernie's way. Um, as, you know, Biden fails and Warren fails and B- Buttigieg has a you know, fake support and so on. There's There's all these signals that are very encouraging. So to that end, like, I think I talked about this last time, but it's worth repeating. Um, Cenk Uger, who's not, uh, he's certainly not like, I would say he's legitimately a centrist in the Democratic Party, meaning he's not like a Warren person who's just a right winger or Biden who's like a hard right war hawk or Hillary Clinton who's like Pinochet or whatever. Um, but he was uh, he was playing clips of like there, there was an event where Bernie was doing a town hall and it was, I think it was aimed per, primarily at Latino voters. And like, he was getting like, they couldn't even start it. Cause there were people mm-hmm. cheering so much, but mm-hmm. Cenk was saying he was at the California democratic um, convention. And he was like, it was 80% Bernie people. 
so like the like I've said before, when I say things like the base of the party, as signaled by the squad getting behind Bernie, is now all buttoned up for Bernie. The, what, I don't just mean the base, like half the party. I mean the fucking all the voters, basically. Um, aside from the neoliberal wing, like Sam Tripoli pointed out in a similar way, he's like, because he got kicked off of YouTube for what amounted to just no reason. Um, but then with pressure from big podcasters like Joe Rogan and shit that YouTube restored his channel. But he was saying like, when you have, so Bernie Sanders went on Joe Rogan and that video has 10 million views. Mm. And most of the Joe Rogan like listens, I think he said like 90% of it is on the pot, like on the audio files. So that's like, you know, that's a lot of fucking people. Mm-hmm. He's like, so you're telling me that Bernie Sanders somehow isn't winning, even though he's getting more views on Joe Rogan than like CNN or Rachel Maddow ever gets way more than even the debate gets. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we're supposed to somehow believe that he's not winning. And so I think, you know, these are anecdotal things, but they're very indicative of like where the support lies, which was true in 2015 and 2016, where Bernie was holding these monster fucking rallies Mm -hmm. rivaling or surpassing Trump. Um, But then they, they stole it from him. Like, so we, we don't have the option of not fighting. We had to fight for Bernie to get elected. There's no question about that. But regardless, um, the wind is at his sails in real terms. Mm -hmm. And, I don't think people were already really pissed off in 2016 and betrayed and all that stuff. I can't imagine now. I really do think this might be the, in terms of the DNC and shit, this might be the 68 year people have been waiting for. And I, unfortunately that didn't turn out well because Bobby Kennedy got murdered, got assassinated. And then, and then there were riots at the DNC Mm -hmm. outside the DNC in Chicago this year, if they try to steal it from Bernie, I think it, it, I don't know if it's going to get violent, but the convention will get shut down by the base. Like there's no, because, and maybe this is so obvious that it's not, it doesn't need to be said, but I don't think I've said it before. Can you imagine like a Joe Biden base? Like who on earth that could be? It's like, it's only old people. And none of them are like going to be on the ground anywhere doing much of anything. There's no, there's maybe a sort of like a little bit of a Liz Warren base, but that's all collapsing. All those votes are getting shaved because she backed off on her positions as predicted by us um, and others. Like there's no Buttigieg base. So like, again, like I... (laughs) just deductively like who are these people that supposedly support these other candidates they don't really exist as far as we can tell um when you poll landlines and you get a bunch of old people and you ask questions in a like in a certain way then yeah they're not going to say bernie sanders but like bernie sanders is represents the base of the party so like I don't know. That that's hard for me to predict in terms of like what would happen if they try and fuck him again. Um, it will it will throw it will be completely chaotic mm-hmm. for sure in the context of the convention, but then thereafter, because Bernie probably knows that he has to um, 
he has to go third party this time. Like there's not people will be legitimately betrayed if he doesn't do it. He should have done it last time, but if he doesn't do it this time, like you can't make the argument that like defeating Trump's the most important thing. Cause it's not going to fucking happen. First of all, with anybody, but Bernie. Um, but like, I don't think Bernie can even convince himself of that. I could be wrong. I hope, you know, I hope I'm not, but like, that's where the stakes are for, for what it's worth. Again, we're, we're coming, we're casting from a place that isn't known for its sort of radical progressivism. Um, you know, it's majority Republican registered voters and so on. Um, all Republican uh, representatives in Congress, overwhelming majority Republican state legislature, but, um, the folks who sort of grew up tried and true liberals, um, and I'm friends with them on Facebook or I talk to them at work or whatever, even my own family, I've been astounded at the degree to which some of them seem to be moving to the left and sort of buying into the Bernie thing, at least some of them. Um, they're, they're not, they're not going to vote for Bernie necessarily, but they see Biden as a failure they're not so sure about this Buttigieg guy. And they kind of like Warren or Klobuchar because she's, you know, because they're Klobuchar is local and Warren because she's left but not Bernie. Like they're moving in that direction is the point I'm getting at, which is interesting to me. And then I'd only point out, too, that, again, it's a pretty conservative place, but we've seen some pretty we have a local DSA chapter and we've seen some really interesting uh, media making moves by that group recently to to do what you're saying about the democratic convention in 68 to sort of rabble rouse at these public meetings and get a lot of attention and people are buying that and people are endorsing and supporting that sort of quote democratic socialist activity in north dakota which is kind of blowing my mind in a way but it's again it's i don't know if that's again a signal for what's to come or not but i'm 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 taking those things as encouraging i guess i don't look at it like that yeah. like um not in this i don't disagree well what i take issue with is the idea that this isn't always already there like mm. um i don't care that people in north dakota identify as conservative i don't think that means anything as we know as you've pointed out from you know journalism that's been done since 2016 north dakota went the most is the highest like biggest Trump state per capita, mm -hmm. but all those people were like, Hillary Clinton would be worse. That's, That's fair. We sure. don't like Trump sure. as much as we like the idea of not being in these wars and mm -hmm. whatever farmers not getting fucked by bad trade deals or something. Mm -hmm. Those are not right wing positions mm -hmm. by any measure. Mm -hmm. Again, Trump won by running to the left of Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. So like when we saw around that time, you know, Kevin Kramer tried to go out in public and people like were literally somebody stuffed a dollar in his pocket because he's fucking bought off and everybody knows it. Um, and the Democrats are worthless and won't run serious campaigns opposing anybody. So they fucking lose. Mm. Um, you know, we passed medical marijuana. We didn't pass, but got a pretty good minority of people who wanted to pass the most radical weed legalization bill in the country i just don't i think what i take issue with is the idea that something's changing in terms of um i don't think i never mm -hmm. like think it's as stark as it is sometimes the reason i get so frustrated with north dakota politics is because 
the people don't fucking agree with the political leadership, but nobody has of yet the stones to really go out in public and just say it and try to win on populist left populist grounds, which is completely possible. And if it's not possible, let's fucking find out that it's not possible by trying to prove it and do it seriously. Um, That's fair. I guess what I was with the DSA example in particular, I guess what I was gesturing toward was the fact that I, I didn't, I, I'm not sure that that sort of organization could have been as successful as they have been in 2015 or 14 because of the reasons mentioned, but maybe it's, that could just not be true. They just didn't exist and, or they, no one on the left had made an attempt to sort of rally the North Dakota public in that way. And we're finding out that people are into that, to your point, that people uh, are in line with those types of policy positions or those, those politics. And they just never had an opportunity because to your, again, the Democrats in this state are, are less than stellar or less than sort of, uh, worth voting for they never had an opportunity to sort of support that stuff at the at the ballot box for example okay fair enough but i don't again i don't think that it wasn't i still don't think that it wasn't even visible because Mm -hmm. like first of all we need to include ourselves in the set here Mm -hmm. um mathematically meaning we did have sds at und in 2010 sure or whatever 2000 what is it late 2007 to 2010 Mm. and then all those people moved to new york and did occupy and like um are now pretty serious organizers Mm -hmm. established in different respects and so on like one of the dsa members from fargo is like asking kind of asking me because she's around my age like what happened she's like i used to tell people like grand forks was full of like philosophers and artists and you know, radicals and shit where, what happened? I'm like, they'll move to New York. So like that, like sort of generation or whatever, largely left, but it wasn't hard to get all that going. I mean, mm-hmm. for me, what, what I always had wanted, like the thing I was focused on in, within that context was let's get people together to talk about like whether or not we should be in these wars. And it was working. We were getting pretty big responses just by doing basic organizing, flyering and shit like that. Um, And like, it was not difficult to set up like kind of large scale events to get people really engaged. And it was, um, you know, and this was done in solidarity with other events going on nationally or whatever. Uh, And then obviously we've talked ad nauseum on the show about the, the nonpartisan league and like how radical they were and how we still have the state bank and mill, um, which is the model, the state banking push in California is modeled off the bank in North Dakota. Um, and so like, I guess I would just kind of like suggest that like what I've suggested before that like we, a lot of this is just knocking on an open door. I mean, it's not like those of us in SDS knew what the fuck we were doing. We were just following our intuition and trying to be not stupid. And it was working. Um, Like this is, there's nothing special about any of this, including the MPL. That was just Mm -hmm. farmers trying to like not get fucked by the grain companies. And it, it caught fire and a lot of radical shit happened. Um, So I guess I don't understand why, or what exactly 
the default position and maybe you've already answered this in some ways but i think it's it confuses me why it seems to you like this is would even be new or um isn't always already just there because again my frustration comes from how easy it probably would be to do but nobody's there to do it or nobody's not even that nobody's trying to do it because they're convinced they can't or whatever sure that to me is like that's insane i just don't personally have the disposition to go run for office at least not currently maybe when i'm older or something i'll feel like it but like uh that sort of like i just how about we try and figure out what works by trying to do it rather than um assuming it can't because it doesn't exist so what in your mind and this is a genuine question it's not even a criticism like i don't what to you seems like the barrier if if the if it seems sort of desolate politically, I guess. Maybe there's not a barrier. Um, it's just, I mean, to your point, maybe folks haven't tried this stuff or just never gave it a thought. Again, of a certain generation, they never gave it a thought, the socialist thing, and then people uh, sort of that are younger, um, with, you know, SDS notwithstanding, um, there was no organized group trying to do this stuff. And I'm seeing that once people do it, to your exact point, when people get organized, it's successful and it takes fire and they get people elected to school board and to state legislature and so on. Um, and I guess the only point I was trying to make too was that that's, that's interesting and encouraging over the last few years. And I wonder the degree to which that does again, signal the direction we're going as an, as a country, right? If, if that sort of thing can happen, quote, even in North Dakota, which has this history of sort of conservative voting, um, are we seeing these sorts of things happening all over the country? in very productive and encouraging ways. Right. And again, I would just sort of like push back slightly and say, we don't have a history of conservative voting. Mm. We have a history of conservative governors. We had democratic congressmen mm. and senators, some of the most, some of the democratic leadership in the Senate who, as we've you know discussed in the Byron Dorgan interview, yeah. predicted the financial crisis right. was, pretty radical in today's terms on a lot of different things, even though he saw himself as the center of the democratic mm -hmm. party, I would argue um, like those are not, that is not indicative of, and North Dakota maybe is, is obviously weird in the sense that we didn't have Republicans or Democrats until the fifties because mm -hmm. of the MPL was in control of everything. Um, I, d I think it's, this like manufactured opacity about history, which um, people buy into. And I'm mm -hmm. not saying you necessarily even fully buy into it, or mm -hmm. it, you're just describing what you see as far as like what you think people think or whatever. But like, I just, I think that we do ourselves a disservice if we ignore the, strength of our own like tradition as well as like i think to be even nominally radical the first step is just a modest step of saying i don't fucking know what's gonna happen mm -hmm. let's find out um and see how far we can get because if we take a view that like we're fighting against something that isn't there or may or may not be there then it's too discouraging to even start but I think that and part of this experience, part of this observation, whatever, like, you know, as I said before, like 
Zizek said about leadership on the left and the Steve Jobs example, like for Jobs, he's like, we don't like people don't know what they want. But then he doesn't say, so we should tell them what they want. He's like, we should pursue what we want. And so, like, that's the short circuit Mm -hmm. is if we don't have the courage of our convictions, we cannot empirically or otherwise demonstrate whether or not people would back our play. If we do have the courage of our convictions, but we also don't care if we lose, then we're already tactically in a much stronger position. So like, and I'm saying this for the hopefully benefit of everyone listening, which is like, you don't know if you can win something or not because you haven't fucking tried. It doesn't mean you guarantee that you're going to win, but if if they can if you can get dsa members elected in fucking west virginia and um you can aoc can come out of literally nowhere and take over the entire fucking country's like as max kaiser said she's the kingmaker now mm-hmm. she didn't exist before like even take the most conspiratorial version of that which is the alex jones like oh she's a plant and all this shit even if that's true, this still doesn't make any sense. So like we can blow all of this shit open at any time. The point is let's not do the work of the political ideology establishment that says you can't do anything. You can't propose radical ideas. You can't, if, if we've seen anything in the last few years from even the local democratic party, it's that playing the center and hedging means you guarantee you will lose every seat in the legislature. If that's fucking true, which it empirically is true, then what we should be advocating for is to go as far as you want, say exactly what you think will work, and then just full court press all in on what you believe in. You're going to get way farther than you could ever imagine, whether or not you lose. We knew somebody who's considering a congressional run who was unable to for certain bureaucratic reasons, and my thesis was if this person had ran even if we lost and lost badly we would have changed the face of north dakota north dakota politics permanently because all of a sudden all these ideas that weren't there before are now being debated that's how you win is you shift the fucking debate itself and you've already won they're already responding to you we saw it in occupy wall street we saw it in bernie sanders 2016 and then later maybe hopefully you're able to take power Maybe that's what I'm getting at, but just not articulating it very well, is that I've been seeing over the last year folks who believed that they didn't have power, that they had to be centrist to win these Democrats who, uh, again, were not interested in real left ideas. And I'm seeing them start to have the courage of their convictions, seeing them move to the left um, and seeing something, seeing, watching them watch a DSA get organized and again be courageous in the public way and they're starting to understand that this is possible and i hadn't seen that Mm. from this class of people at least again in 2012 or 2013 even post-occupy because again they're older they're boomers they're professionals they're bourgeois whatever and i'm seeing even those folks suddenly start to see the possibilities right which fair enough and i think that just proves zizek's point about Mm -hmm. like Trump is a positive in a negative sense because Mm -hmm. 
he scared the shit out of people and he broke the political establishment so fundamentally that like it opened the space for a new um, um, an emergent new left to like have a serious shot at at winning mm -hmm. and i think the other side of this or the other like important point to note is that what bernie will do so if bernie sweeps the first four primaries and it becomes the the sort of like it becomes clear that he's probably going to win um obviously we'll see but uh if that's true that will embolden the entire country to run for congress to run for every mm -hmm. to try and win everybody who thinks even a little bit of this shit is important mm -hmm. can now run at every level of government we might take over the whole fucking congress and hopefully a few state legislatures school board and everything yeah if we could do that in a big way then um bernie will have the mandate to be able to change the country to civilize to civilize the country mm -hmm. at an infrastructure level so not only should we not lose nerves about bernie being the only hope but also we shouldn't hem our, uh, you know we shouldn't box ourselves into thinking we can't go further just mm -hmm. because it's focused on him right now right um and like i hope that that becomes i'm sure aoc will start pitching what i'm just saying of you know after bernie starts winning primaries which i s suspect that he will um you know if what we say is true which it is that things can change very quickly then we should also not again constrain ourselves in the other way and assume we can't get further than we imagine so like the the wager is not only we should we do these because we should have the courage of our convictions, but also because we need to be able to accept responsibility and take seriously how far we might be able to go and what wielding that type of power could mean. Um, which may seem fantastical at this moment, but like who, who fucking knows. Mm -hmm. And this, I think is another, this is the the problem. The large problem on the intellectual left is that people don't want to win. And so they, they tend to break in the favor of a fake realism of, that's just cynicism about, oh, we can't, oh, even if he wins, nothing will happen, even if this and the, all this power and all, like, we'll never get it or whatever, that you're deciding to fail, mm -hmm. and so you fail. So in a sense, you what you did worked. It's just that you chose the wrong path. Um, and so it's it's important i think especially in a moment like this where we're not quite in the election cycle and people don't have to make decisions about whether they're going to run for congress or state legislature or whatever or judges or whatever they want um to just like if if anything about the punk ethos is worth salvaging it's the very formal move to say fuck it we don't know what happens and we don't care but, you know, this, this is important to us and just go from there. That should be the impetus for everything. Because what else could, you know, to take a techno-capitalist uh, idea like Peter Diamandis, which is find your massively transformative purpose, find the thing that, will you know, you'll be willing to work until three o'clock in the morning to achieve. I think as on principle, that's correct, you know, in an abstract way. Um if if we're serious about this and we really want to win, then it's always worth doing. And if it's worth doing, then fucking do it. Because if it 
if it fails, you probably land somewhere that didn't exist before anyway. Mm-hmm. There's no there's no map for this territory because we're talking about the future. To bring it back to Hegel, like for Hegel, you can never predict the future because no matter what you're projecting out, you're always painting gray on gray. You're always just reading the future in terms of what's presently mm-hmm. what presently exists. If we're trying to create something new, then we don't know what will happen once we start that process. And again, we might get way further than we want. We may just fail, which is what we were probably predicting if we don't think that we can win. So if you end up losing, you're no worse off than when you started. So you really have nothing to lose. <laughs>